Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. All right, Luke chapter 2. You can click or turn to that. Um, this will be the other reason why we are singing Christmas carols today. Verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went out to be registered, everyone to his own city. What we're going to dig into today, Luke chapter 2, in the last chapter we had both John the Baptist and Jesus get born. And or John, or both of them have prophecies about them to their parents, and then John the Baptist is born. In this chapter, it's the account of Jesus growing up. So what we get is a picture of what it looks like for a godly child to grow up, a perfect child. What does it look like to be going from boy to man? What does that look like? I think for any per, any child moving to adulthood, what does that look like? So as usual, Luke roots his accounts in historical footings. We got Augustus in the Latin that means exalted. Octavian changed his name when he took over as really, so he gets adopted into Julius Caesar's family. A year after Julius Caesar names Octavian as heir, somehow or another, Julius Caesar gets killed. And we get that account through Shakespeare's play on the Ides of March. He's killed within a year of naming Octavian as his heir. People think that that might have been orchestrated in part by Octavian or his mother. Anyways, he becomes really the first full emperor of Rome, if you don't count Julius Caesar, who kind of took that position for himself. The Senate's been disbanded. It's gone away. We have this period where Augustus or Octavian takes the title after he beats Anthony and Cleopatra in, a, in one of the major wars of history. So they come and try for the this throne. Um, he wins, he beats them, and he becomes the sole emperor. There's no shared authority anymore. And Octo Octavian is known primarily as a brilliant administrator. As ruthless as he might have been to get that position, his leadership style was peace at all costs. In fact, with him winning the, the seat as Augustus came in, the promise of him was peace. That if I'm Caesar, if I'm exalted, this realm will have peace. And that's the promise that he makes to the world. So Caesar exalted that all the world should be registered. All the world would be the Roman world, of course. Uh, they don't count barbarians. They don't count the Far East. They're not taking a registration of North American Indians. The Pax Romana is a, this area around the Mediterranean, which under Augustus has reached the largest spread that the Roman Empire will have. It goes all the way up to Britain, all the way down into Africa. All trade routes are dominated by Rome. Rome's known for building the roads that are still around today in parts of Europe. They're like amazing architecture, amazing everything. The promise of human rule on earth reaches, reaches its height of power, arguably, in the, in the shape of Rome and under Octavius. And so you have all the promise of the world being offered, and in the middle of that, God brings the spiritual promise of peace to the world through Jesus Christ. So they advance this idea of wealth, stability, roads, order, government. It sounds like I'm a Roman fan, but they also advance taxes. They put the people under a burden of taxes like never before that we've seen. And 
there is an absolute running rampant of immorality throughout the Roman Empire. So they celebrate a set of gods that they've moshed together from the Assyrians, the Greeks, everybody else. And it's this basically serve whatever you want kind of poly worship that they would have there. So Horace said of Rome, our fathers were worse than our grandfathers. We've deteriorated from our fathers. Our sons will cause us to be lamented. There was a known element of immorality in Rome, and even Rome recognized that their moral core was disintegrating completely. So where they've reached everything that world power would promise, they've failed when it comes to morality, and in that there's just a lack of answers coming from Rome. The Republic is about to fall. There is a, a political savior that has been set up, but Augustus is not the savior. And it says to be registered. To be registered is for taxation. The purpose of this census that's going to be taken is that everybody's going to pay everything they can under this worldly control. Worldly control promises peace, but it really offers slavery. And they just change the forms of slavery. Roman corruption then is at its height, and taxes are not going to the great public works and the Roman roads anymore. Taxes are lining people's pockets. So there's levels of authority that comes with levels of graft and um, corruption. The more corrupt the state, the more numerous the laws, Tacitus. The other thing that's growing under Rome is an extensive set of laws that get passed, hundreds of laws. So it's not just be nice and don't murder. It's that the laws get more and more detailed, more and more particular. At the same time that Rome is offering peace, they're offering more laws, more taxes, and more corruption. And there's, this, there's kind of a dissettling spirit that's going about with Rome. You could argue that we've reached the height of legalism with the Pharisees. And the religious world is said as at the most finely tuned religious system that they have. And in that system, likewise, you've got layers of corruption. You've got the height of legalism. You've got the promise of peace with God, but all it is is a jail cell. And they've got on both sides, worldly corruption over here, kind of horrible legalism over here, and you've got these two offerings for the mass public. And Jesus is born right in the middle of it. And I, I just, the, the timing of this, it says Quirinius, a historical figure. Again, Luke places these things so that we have a historical footnote for when this happens. So it's documented. So all went all went according to be registered. I just like this idea that the whole world is shifting and moving because God has a plan. And it's easy to think if you're Augustus Caesar that you're in control, but at the end of the day, Augustus Caesar has got it on his spirit to pass policies and laws that actually move people around so that God's orchestrating everything that needs to happen to fulfill prophecy. And we're going to see that in this chapter. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, the branch, into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So the Nazareth branch family has to make a trip to, Be to Bethlehem. It's an 80-mile trip. That's not fun when you're pregnant. And Mary is pregnant. Judea, is Israel says to his son Judah, here's the thing that was promised to Judah. This is why I think Luke put this here. Genesis 49.10, Israel's dying and he prophesies to Judah that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and unto him shall be the gathering of the people. 
So there was a promise that Judah would continue to have authority and sovereignty over their tribe right up until this Messiah figure shows up. So it's keeping that promise. Bethlehem is the, the shepherding town of David's flock. So when David was a kid and he was watching after his sheep, it happens in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's important for a few other reasons. Genesis 35, Rachel's tomb is here. Ruth, the entire book, Naomi and Ruth meet Boaz here in Bethlehem. 1 Samuel 16, David gets anointed in the little town of Bethlehem. 2 Samuel 23, David tells his men, man, I'd like a good drink of water from that living water down in the well in Bethlehem. All of these things, all this little backwater town and, and a Galilean from Nazareth to be born in the Bethlehem, the city, of, or the city in Judah, that narrows down all of the world's population to basically Jesus. Just those two prophecies alone. He shall come out of Nazareth and he shall be born in Bethlehem, two very small little towns, and to say that that's going to happen somehow or another really narrows the field down when you're just looking for Messiah that fits all the prophecies. God's using Augustus, exalted one, like his pawn to make all this happen. Micah 5.2, be thou Bethlehem Ephratah. It's such a small town, you got to say which Bethlehem it is. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth unto me that which is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Prophecy. It's got to come out of Nazareth, got to come out of Bethlehem. All in the public record, all under Augustus and Quirinius, all able to be documented. How does God orchestrate a Nazarene to come out of Bethlehem? Like this. This is how God does things. I like how Luke sets that up. Luke, like God gives impossible prophecies just to show off how in control he is, how gentle a hand he has on human history, and how everything's just moving according to God's plan. Verse 5 to be registered with Mary. They have to go to the town to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her husband to be delivered. It's interesting that Mary's going with Joseph for this because uh, it says his betrothed wife, they're not quite married yet, yet they're traveling together. So this says something about how ostracized these two would have been in this situation. We talked about that last week. It also says this, it says that perhaps Mary had very little family to speak of because she's hanging out with this other family. And she's going with Joseph to be registered with Mary. It's not Joseph and Mary getting registered. It's Joseph getting registered. It's his family that they're going back with. Mary should still be with her family until the day they're married, until he takes her away from that family. So it's interesting, it, just a note, that Mary's traveling with Joseph to be registered with his family. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. It could be that she was um, like her family disowned her because of the, the child that's in her womb. And, the, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. When I was a kid, I never knew what swaddling was, and I always thought that was a very unique word. So I looked it up. It means little strips of cloth. And I'm like, that's not clothes, that's rags. And that's kind of their nice word for rags. He got, they would rip off strips of clean cloth and wrap it around the baby. And then if they had a stain on their shirt, they probably wouldn't use that spot. But they would use the clean spots. They laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So we have, um, again, repeating this point of, of betrothal. 
it's important to Luke that we know the status of these two as they're going through the story. Uh, it points out that it's her firstborn son, so that makes uh, um, she was with child, and then it says they brought forth her firstborn son. Doesn't mention Joseph. Again, Luke's been really particular. This is a virgin birth. It's her firstborn son, not his firstborn son. So the this is as Gabriel said it would be, and. Um, we are looking at the idea of firstborn son. You can go all the way back to Exodus 4.22. God called Israel, the nation, his firstborn son. So that some people get an issue with that because in the Old Testament, God calls a nation his firstborn. In, in the New Testament, we see God or the Spirit having a firstborn son. Again, technically it says her firstborn son. For God, this is Israel was the firstborn son. Yet the inheritor becomes Jesus. Well, how does the firstborn not inherit everything? Well, virtually every king that gets picked in the Old Testament that's significant is not the firstborn biologically. It's the firstborn based on heart and spirit. So David was not the firstborn son. Solomon was not the firstborn son. We have multiple instances where God's selection or choice for inheritance is not the firstborn. So there's there's ways to talk about that. The other thing with the... Um, Swaddling clothes, you may think, well, in the first century, they wrapped babies in swaddling clothes all the time. Nope, not the case. In the same way, they did, they did not typically lay babies into mangers, right? That was not something that was good. It was not hygienic. It wasn't a good thing Jesus had a good immune system. But to lay a baby in a manger in rags is the humblest of beginnings that you can get. And those rags would have been in part, those strips were typically cut to get like birthing stuff off the baby. So there's no special treatment for Jesus. He's at the lowest level. And then it says there's no room for them in the inn. There could be two reasons for this. The popular reason is they were all filled up because of the census. That Bethlehem, a lot of people traveling back to it and they were staying in inns to be there. Uh, another thought is that they couldn't stay in an inn because she was betrothed, which is what it says in the verse. And, I, and he and her are not supposed to stay in the same room together. They have to stay in a public place. So there's no room for them because they're betrothed and they won't allow them into a room out of, out of decency sake. Either way, they're both there in verse 16. They're both present in the manger. Mary's not completely alone, but she doesn't have her family around her. She doesn't have musicians singing outside like Elizabeth did, right? Comparing Mary's birthing situation to Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's was your traditional one, and we see this in contrast to her birthing John the Baptist. Jesus didn't get any of that treatment. None of those traditions were in place for him. Unless you want to argue that the muling of the animals was God's song to Jesus as he was born. Like, that's a nice thought. Um, the manger would have been full or packed. If the inns were full, the manger would have been full of all the traveling animals and livestock because you'd bring your meals with you and you'd have them come along when you take longer journeys. So this idea, not only that, but if there's a census, there means there's taxes. Part of what you paid in taxes were actually animals. So this manger would have been packed out. So maybe there was a little orchestra there and they all sang together like some of the cartoons have. Um, or there, this was just a really horrible situation to give birth to a baby. No family, no friends, no musician, no clean, soft bed to be in. Just the worst of almost humble positions to be starting from. Verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. 
And then the angel said to them, as angels typically do, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Those two features, which you would not see. So both of those are entirely unique. And suddenly there was an angel and a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. In Bethlehem and in the, in the Jewish world at this time, shepherds were not allowed to testify in court. They were seen as too young, too ridiculous, and some of them went crazy out in the fields. So they weren't trusted. So in the same sense that you have this very traditional role of shepherding, goes all the way back to David, but they, it, it may be that Luke's recording this and recognizing it not because of court records, but because he's gone to this town and interviewed everybody in town. And we're going to see in a little bit how the shepherds behave, which I think is where Luke gets his source for that. Here's another thought with Bethlehem shepherds. Bethlehem had a very particular flock that was kept at Bethlehem in the first century. Because David kept his flock in those hills, the temple in Jerusalem, their flock for their sacrificial lambs was in Bethlehem. This was their primary industry in the first century. They would grow the perfect lambs that would then be sold to people when they came to the temple. You know, when they would say, oh, your lamb's not perfect, you need to buy a temple lamb. That temple lamb came out of these hills. So these particular, and it's just a thought, and the Bible doesn't say this, but it might be that these particular shepherds were the men that watched over the temple sacrifices and the perfect lambs of God that were being grown and raised in these hills. So there's this community memory that comes out of this experience. They're settled in, they're at their campfire, they're checking out the stars, and bam, the whole place lights up. And it's not their campfire. It's this angel that shows up. Doesn't say which angel it is, right? And it says there's a a host in, in the Greek or an army that is praising God. So it's not just a, there's this massive multitude that shows up and starts to praise God. And what does praising God look like with angels? I think it's going to be pretty good stuff. They've had a light, well, for an angel, they've had since the beginning of time to practice this craft of praising God. So the the shepherds maybe are thinking, maybe it's our turn to go nuts. Maybe we're seeing things. What the heck is going on here? There is this idea that they're terrified of what's happening. Are we seeing things? What's going on? And this idea of don't fear comes out again. Angels have to say that because there is a power to angels being in the presence of God and carrying that with them that's intimidating to other people. So it says good tidings, the word euangeliso. It's where we get evangelist from. Good tidings. They're the first of they're these evangelists that are there to tell the good news. The Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the gospel is told for the first time that Christ is the Savior. He is the Lord, both. Um, and he gets all three of those titles: Jesus, Savior, Christ, and Lord. And this is who you're looking for. It says to be um, that there's a child. It's, it's interesting. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. The word babe there should have a capital letter in your, in your uh, edition. It's, it's used as a proper noun. In other words, the shepherds aren't given the name Jesus. They have to be told the name Jesus. I think that's interesting. When you think of this as like the first evangelism, 
that even the angels are going to trust humans to tell the name of Jesus. They don't get to do that. And it looks a lot more like the Old Testament where they talk about Messiah, Savior, Lord, Christ, and they don't use the name Jesus until we get to the New Testament. And the angels are holding back on that in this narrative. And I just thought that was kind of interesting. They point out the rags that he's wrapped in and the manger that he's laid in. Manger would be like a watering trough for animals. Big wooden troughs that would be tightly sealed so they could hold water. Not sanitary places to put a baby. But if you wanted to wash a baby after they were born, you would use that manger water to do that. And you'd clean it off and you'd, you'd find a dry spot at the end of the trough and lay it there. Lay the child there. Humble birth, glorious announcement, way better than John the Baptist. Angels and an army singing praises together, a multitude. This becomes then, and I think this is interesting, this announcement to a child becomes the central act of angels in all of human history. The angels actually show up in mass here. You'd say, well, David, like, heard the sound of marching in the trees and saw the armies of God. Maybe that's the other piece. But this narrative right here is the most exposure to angels directly that we get in the Bible. This multitude and host shows up. And they're marking this event in human history where God's interceding and himself incarnating and coming on the planet. Glory to God. God's doing all of this. God's the central character. On earth, peace. It's interesting that the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, is what's promised by the world, and we're at the, ed we're at the edge of that, but we're also at the peace of God, Pax Theos. And we're at this edge of the peace of God and the peace of Rome and what's going to last and what's actually going to bring peace to people. That's the war that's been happening since the beginning of the world. Satan's building perhaps one of his greatest empires and God's planting the seed of the empire or the kingdom of God. Jesus comes with peace. He's repairing the gap. The peace that God talks about to bring on earth peace is this distance that we have with God because of sin. And Jesus is going to resolve that and bring peace between God and man. That is worth celebrating. Goodwill towards men. That God's will and his heart towards humanity is for good, it's not for evil. God's heart is not to punish, it's to bless. And it always has been. So he comes himself for shalom or peace with humanity. And verse 15 says, So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. I think it's interesting because Luke's getting this account, you know, 30 years after the fact from these shepherds. And the statement of the shepherds seems really formal to what was probably initially said between them. And I don't want to doubt the scriptures here, but let us go now to Bethlehem. I'm thinking it was probably initially something more like, holy crap, we got to go to Bethlehem. Like, did you see that? Did, am I imagine? No, I saw it. Okay, we got to go. See you later. So they, like, yeah, time to go. Let us go now. There's an urgency here to drop everything and follow Jesus. The real lamb of God is in a manger right now and just got born, these other lambs of God, these wool-bearing things that they were responsible for, um, they had to find someone to watch them, take care of them, or they had to drive the entire herd back to Bethlehem, or they knew they were in a safe pasture and they were within running distance to get back there. 
this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. It's very clear that these shepherds understand, and I think this is interesting, they understand that it wasn't angels that made it known to them. It was the Lord sending the angels that made it known to them. And there's a respect there for who's kind of, you know, the manger setting's clear, and God uses Mary's trials to identify Jesus with others to these shepherds. That's God's work. That's what God is doing. Mary's probably thinking to herself, this is not how I imagined having a baby. I imagined my mom would be around. I imagined my family be around. I imagined like all the other girls in town, there's going to be a chorus outside the birthing room. She's probably thinking this is the worst day of her life because here she is with a guy she's not yet married to, giving birth in a manger with animals. She's thinking this is the worst thing that could ever happen. But what, what God's doing in the middle of that trial is creating the greatest birthing scene ever in the history of the world. So Mary's trials become God's glory in this sort of thing. Same manger that the shepherds would have used many times, like this was not a big town. And they walk in, and here's God saying, here's the Lamb of God. It's interesting. Maybe even the idea that they're giving birth in a manger that had lambs of God coming in and out of it all the time. This is where they would try to birth the lambs. Right? So if you had springtime, you'd bring the lambs in, you'd use this corral manger area, you'd use that. It could be that growing up, John the Baptist, his cousin, was calling him the Lamb of God since he was a kid because of this birth setting. So when we see him say, look, the Lamb of God, we see that as this great announcement of the baptism. Could be that John was in love, nicknamed Jesus that a long time ago and that this setting made that it's the lamb of God he's born like a lamb he's born in a manger and that title gets used and it actually has much deeper and greater meaning than than perhaps was intended initially but I think John knows what he's saying at the baptism too time has passed he believes Jesus is the Messiah so they go in verse 16 they came with haste again they're running like they're booking it because this is something that you don't see happen every day. And they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. The babe's been born. So we, we skip over the entire scene of birthing and there they are. They show up. They're right there at the beginning. Again, imagine how Mary's heart has to be at its lowest right now. Giving birth comes with birth pains that get worse and worse and worse and more painful. And I'm so glad I'm a guy. And then you get to this point, I think, where the woman feels like she's about to die. And, and out of that feeling of, I'm going to die here on this bed, comes new life and a new spark of life. What a joy that immediately after this baby is born, these shepherds come running up to the door and affirm to Mary that God's got this all in control. What you think is so horrible is actually God, he's watching all of this. Verse 17, now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Mary and Joseph don't have to promote Jesus. God's got that taken care of. They just need to do the work God's given them. And God's raising up these shepherds to tell the whole town. Verse 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen and was told to them. What I, what I want to know in this story is, it seems like in verse 18, they run around town and tell everybody what's going on. And then in verse 20, like they come back and praise, at the, they want to be there and praise this baby, but it seems like nobody's come back with them. 
So they're so excited about what's going on. They've met Jesus for the first time and they make it widely known. This is this idea of beginnings is common in Luke where he's pointing out again and again and again how all of this happened in public. Everybody in Bethlehem knew what had happened on this night. I didn't know if they know Simeon and they, they, I don't know if they knew Anna, which we'll get to. I don't know if these folks knew the same people in Nazareth that had heard what happened to Joseph and Mary. I don't know if these people knew Elizabeth and Zacharias, but it seems like God's planting these knowledge bases all around Israel and he's being very intentional. Here we get the word marveled again. The community marveled. But to marvel at Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that they come and serve and worship Jesus. They just marvel. Oh, that's really cool. That's neat. Those who heard it marveled. Luke would have interviewed some of these people. He would have heard these words. But hearing them doesn't necessarily turn into acting on them. And I think there's a distinction there. But Mary kept them. The word there for kept is suterio. It means to preserve something from being lost. In all likelihood, the word but Mary kept in verse 19 means she wrote these things down. She kept a record. And that word is often used with the temple records. So Luke, I think, is citing his source there. Like This is where he's getting some of this. And what he's doing in 17, 18, 19, and 20 is he's telling us where he got this story from. Got it from the shepherds. Verse 18, got it from everybody in town. Verse 19, Mary had these things written down and she'd been pondering them since for 30 years. And then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that were heard and seen as it was told to them. The angels told them all this was going to happen. So he's got all of those different kind of sources on this. Mary doesn't advertise it, but the shepherds do. She didn't plan on being here in Nazareth. The shepherds did plan on being there. You have the wealthy birth of John the Baptist. You have the complete, humble beginnings of Jesus Christ. All these things in contrast. And all of this orchestrated largely because Caesar thinks he's doing something for himself and what he's doing is fulfilling prophecies. It's important that this baby in a manger is unique. It's important that God orchestrates all this. Verse 17, told them. Verse 18, told them. Verse 19, as it was told to them. All of this is happening according to the word of God. God says it. It's all happening that way. Luke shows the shepherds. Matthew shows the wise men. Luke shows how close these shepherds were, just walking distance. Matthew shows how far away the wise men were. Everybody's hearing about Jesus. Luke shows the poverty of Jesus' birth. Matthew shows the wealth, the frankincense, gold, and myrrh being given by the wise people. Clearly, Mary and Joseph hadn't received gold, frankincense, and myrrh at this point in their life or they would have better places to save. God reveals it to the few in Bethlehem. With Matthew, he, re- he reveals it to the world, even as far east as the school of the Magi that's way back in Babylon. All of this, both Matthew and Luke, are showing glory and praise to God in the birth of Jesus and how that birth happens. Different emphasis, same glory to God that goes out. They have a zeal in proclaiming what God did and that God kept his word perfectly as it was told to them and the zeal for God I think what I like about the shepherds is they remind me of new newfound believers that are so excited about the blessings they're feeling so excited about what God's doing in their life so excited to be following Christ that you get that year one of just somebody who's just committed their life to the Lord and they just want to tell everybody they know about it this is so great and I don't think that love and that zeal should ever diminish 
glorifying and praising God, the world, our flesh, want to diminish that over time. Well, I was just naive and young. And the Lord tells us, no, we should practice the art of, on an ongoing basis, renewing our zeal for the Lord by praising and glorifying God. It's why we do some music on a Sunday morning. It's why we study His Word. It's why we fellowship. When your heart and your life has changed and you realize God's actually moving and interacting with us on earth, that's an amazing feeling. It's a wonderful thing to see. And I think new believers should, like, they're a blessing to a church because they remind us what that zeal felt like, what it looks like. And it's so easy to take for granted the simple blessings of provision, peace, order, joy, happiness, those, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We can take those things for granted as we go through our day-to-day lives and live our lives. But I don't think we should ever take those things for granted. Verse 21, we finally get the name. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called, all capitals, Jesus It's not all capitals because it's an acronym. It's all capitals because throughout the Old Testament, they used capital Y-H-W-H for Yahweh, the name of God. And putting it in all capitals signifies this is the name of God on earth. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus means Jehovah's salvation. It was a common name when it was given. It mirrors John's circumcisions. Both families know Both families are good families following the law. Both families are godly families. They're living as God has asked them to. And both families get the name of their child ahead of time, showing how important these names are. The image of being sealed to God then becomes an important image. Jesus identifies with humans in his humanity, and Jesus is salvation. The eight days of circumcision we talked about with John the Baptist. I won't go into that again. Verse 22, now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is, a, this is something after 40 days, you're supposed to go back and bring the baby to the temple. This is kind of like what Lutherans do when they do infant baptism. Like it's kind of a committing and it's more for the parents than for the child. Clearly the baby's not making life decisions at this point. But it is something to say, like we as a family and we as a body, we're all part of raising this child. So they do this kind of baby dedication ceremony and that started with the Jews. Uh, It says, they brought him to Jerusalem, present him to the Lord, verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Luke takes clearly what is recorded, but that at the dedication of Jesus, two young turtle doves or young pigeons were given by Joseph and Mary. Again, they haven't gotten the gifts yet from the wise men. So it says they, it's interesting because he was clearly denoting Mary before, but now he says they, which means Joseph and Mary come together. So it's a baby dedication. It could be that between the betrothal and birth of Jesus, that Joseph and Mary, now that Jesus is born, and and during that 40 days, it could be that they had a wedding. And they put that wedding as close as they could. In obedience to God, they didn't get married before Jesus was born because Jesus' dad was of the spirit of God. And so, but after the baby's born, now they can get married. So when it says they here, it's a subtle indication that perhaps they're married and that the recording of the genealogies gets kept. And genealogically, Joseph has Jesus as his inheritor. So he inherits the line of David and the throne of David through Joseph. However, through Mary, he has the spiritual connection or 
the, the line through Mary that's recorded also. So in the law, Exodus 13, 2, says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, which Luke's already named Jesus the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb, firstborn of that woman, among the children of Israel, both man and beast. And the reason it gives in Exodus 13, 2 is because it is mine. And that God owns the firstborn of every woman. That, that that child belongs to God. Therefore, you bring that God to the temple and you have them recorded. So a pair of turtle doves. This is the other piece. In the temple records, that would be recorded. That with Jesus, this was the sacrifice. Luke points out that this is according to the law. He says, as it is written. He says, according to what is said. And then he says, in the law of the Lord. Four times. He's pointing out that they did everything by the book with Jesus. All things were recorded. God makes a law, and then he expects humans to keep it. He also keeps it, and he gives Jesus over to a family that keeps the law. God doesn't give laws lightly, and he doesn't give them without reason. So it's interesting to me how some of these things are the laws that God gives seem silly and superfluous, but they're not. They're very particular in what God wants done with those things. Then you got the laws that humans make up, with which Jesus will grow up to target as traditions of man, not the law of God. So the law of God is at eight days you circumcise a male child. At 40 days, if this is your firstborn, you bring them down to the temple and you give a sacrifice to God. The two turtle doves and the two pigeons are an exchange to God that you're making a payment so that you can take that child back home. That makes the firstborn kind of a wave offering. It belongs to God but you've given this substitutionary sacrifice so that you can bring your son home with you. And the image of it is extremely important. Like, we all belong to God. God like, our kids are on loan to us from God, but they belong to God. And we're given stewardship of children when we have children in our family. So God makes a law. He keeps it. There's a perfect, and I think this is what Luke's doing here, there is a perfect adherence to the law and a legal justification for everything Jesus does. He has no fault. And so by showing these and, re and reminding us of these things, as it is written according to the law, he's pointing out the fact that Jesus did everything right even before he had the ability to make that decision himself. His parents did everything right. So... There's a legal justification goes with this, and I think it's good to note this. You want to peek over at Galatians 4? There's an interesting way Christians kind of framed all of this that was happening, this idea of children, bondage, ownership, and all of these things. And Galatians 4 kind of points this out. I'm not hearing pages flip, so I'm assuming we got clicks and buttons. Or you can just put the note in your margin. Okay, Galatians 4, verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And this is, I think, where they're reading Luke. To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The first legal elements are kept perfectly for Jesus. And this means that everything Jesus inherits through God the Father can be something that we inherit because God, Jesus offers us entrance to his family. 
And so this passage in Luke, I think, takes a whole interesting layer on that because the days of purification, everything's done according to the law, everything's kept, and this firstborn that belongs to God because God owns it is then given up as a sacrifice. The other thing with turtle doves and young pigeons is that it was supposed to be a lamb that was given for the child. But God put a provision in the law that they could give turtle doves and pigeons if they were poor or if they were broke. Tells us about Mary and Joseph's situation. It would have been a dishonor in the Jewish community to give pigeons. The idea of a pigeon is you can go to any barn and find a couple and bring them to the temple. You have to put work in instead of money. But a lamb, you actually have to own lambs to be able to do that. So Mary and Joseph are destitute. They don't have money. They don't have the support of their families at this point because largely speaking, the families would help cough up the lamb and do that. So they have nothing. So Joseph had to go out and wrangle up two birds. Go try doing that this afternoon. See how easy that is to do, especially when birds have places to run. So you had to get clever and creative. They put time into this. Or they went to the temple courtyards and they bought them in the courtyard, which I think is unlikely because you don't want to have to do this. So they give this pair of turtle doves, this pair of pigeons as a substitution so they can be good, they can have the stewardship of this child that belongs to God. And Jesus does the same thing with us, only he provides himself as a substitution so that he can call us his own. It's just kind of the imagery is just there. Verse 25, back in our chapter. Look at this, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And his, this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, and before I read what he says, Luke includes some pretty interesting stories, and we get this story of Simeon. How is this guy defined? He's defined as just and devout. So Simeon was a guy who studied the word. He was looking for the Christ. He knew the times were close. And it's, it's interesting, and it's kind of striking how unaware the Jewish priesthood is and how unready the rest of the Jewish... They should be looking at every baby that's coming into the temple right now. Mm. Because if you look at Daniel, if you look at Ezekiel, you look at Isaiah, this was the time. They should have been looking for Messiah. And you got this guy, Simeon, and it doesn't say he was a priest. It just says he was just and devout. It doesn't say who his family was. It doesn't say who his dad was. He's just a just and devout guy. He hangs out at the temple a lot. He's probably reading the scriptures, which were kept at the temple. right? You had to be pretty wealthy to have your own copy. Otherwise, you'd go down to the temple library and you read a copy that the scribes were working on. The word just there in the Greek is diakos, diakaios. It means acceptable to God. So Simeon was acceptable to God. He lived a life that was just in that all his sins had had sacrifices given. He, he did everything he could do under God's law and God found him acceptable. And he's sitting there and he's waiting and his actions and his heart are in the same place. He's of one mind looking for the Messiah. Here's the other thing. The fact that he's the only guy, I just couldn't get past this. They must have thought this guy was a wacko. Because at some point in the past, he's like, God told me I'm going to see the Messiah before I die. And here's this old codger running around, probably telling the people this for years. Lord told me I was going to see the Messiah. So I come in and I just hang around where we do the baby dedications. 
Because at some point, God's that Messiah is going to walk through that door, and I want to be here when that happens. I'm getting old. I'm not going to probably see this Messiah in his conquering years, but I'm going to see him when he's a baby before I die. We got a lot of people running around right now saying, I think the Lord's coming back before I die. And there are people that say, hey, chill it, cool it down just a little bit. You're a little extreme by saying, do you think you know when Jesus is coming back? And obviously we don't know the day or the hour, but there's a lot of signs going on right now. There are a lot of fulfilled prophecies happening all the time right now. And we've got some folks, even some older folks going, I think the Lord's coming back before I die. I'm not going to have to see the grave. And they're very excited about that. And in the same way we don't disregard the zeal of the shepherds, I don't think we should disregard the hope of the elderly. And those people are sweet in the body of Christ, and they're the people that proclaim and announce what the Holy Spirit's doing. Those brand new believers and those old gems that are just sticking to it because they got that hope that won't go away. God has told me. I've seen these things. That said, Zeal does fade. Sometimes people do die before they see what they thought they would see. But the Simeon guy, man, he's just holding to it. And hey, what's it? Who's that old guy? Oh, he comes around every day to watch the baby dedications. He's thinking he's seeing Messiah. And you can just hear the scoffers and the mockers around a guy like Simeon. It's like, you know what? Other people, the godly people, are like, that's Simeon. He just can't wait to see Messiah. And I hope he gets to see him. I hope, I hope it all happens for him. Just acceptable by God, devout, attending to the spiritual life with action. That's what devout means. He's attending to the spiritual life with action. Not a worldly position. He's looking for a spiritual position. And there's no record of anything there. So he's waiting for the consolation of Israel is what it says in verse 25. This small, unofficial remnant of people just waiting on God. Every generation that we've seen in the biblical account has a small group of people that just want to serve the Lord. See you, Dan. And this idea, this unofficial remnant that's coming around, and it's not the Pharisees, it's not the Sadducees. Like, these people are missing the boat. The Sadducees, they're compromised. They're hanging out with the Romans. They're as corrupt as the Romans are. The Pharisees, they're the, the religious legalists. They're rich, they're affluent, they're living off the tithes of other people, and they're almost compromised because they won't deal with Rome or speak out against Rome. It's not the aesthetics, the guys hiding out in the caves. They're not looking for Jesus. They're just like, I'm going to go live on my own. You know, we call them the preppers or whatever. You know, they're not the zealots, those politically focused people. Remember Jesus recruited one as a disciple? These are guys like getting ready to fight and kill Romans. They're ready to, they're the political activists. And you think of that, all those groups that Jesus runs into, and I can't help but see how connected that is. You got compromised people that are just doing worldly sin. You got legalistic people that just scare people away from the faith. You got aesthetics that won't deal with anybody. They just hide out in their caves. And you got the people that think politics are the answer. And they're all missing the point. None of them see Jesus. None of them are waiting for Jesus. None of them are watching where they should be watching. You know who shows up? A carpenter, shepherds, fishermen, Simeon, the Simeon guy with no family, no history, no position. These are the guys that are waiting for and they find Jesus, the simple people, the basic people. And that, you know, people that love Matthew are like, he's a tax collector. Okay, a tax collector, somebody that the Jewish people hated, was ready and waiting for God when he shows up. So that's Simeon. That's the kind of guy I want to be, just 
acceptable to God, and devout, living out my faith in action, doing exactly what I would say. Faithful people. So here's this Simeon guy just faithfully doing his thing every week, showing up, probably to the mockery of some. But then it says this, the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's not the first time we've seen Luke say that. Holy Spirit was upon him. This is such a big deal to Luke about this Holy Spirit. As a historian, God keeps coming up as being upon the people that are going to announce Jesus. God has set up and encouraged and inspired people to announce and proclaim Jesus Christ. Even before Jesus does his own ministry, he's got people all around him proclaiming the glory to God. I love this. It had been revealed to him. Lucas, I think he assumes we understand what, what that is and how that works. What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to reveal something to me? I really want to know that question. What does that look like? What directs my decisions? And you think of this and you think, who are the people led by the Holy Spirit? And who are the people that are led by other things? And if you think of it in terms of idols, right? Idol worship is that your heart goes to something that's not God. It's empty. That means, you know, maybe I like woodworking. And when I get a spare moment, all I want to do is go woodworking. Nothing wrong with woodworking. But it can become an idol when that becomes more important than my duty to God and what I have for God. So any of these things can be there. So if I'm led by the spirit of woodworking, then all I want to do is woodworking. But if I'm led by the spirit of God, all I want to do are the things of God. And everything else comes after that. And I think there's, and and I'm saying that because I love woodworking. It brings me peace. I love seeing something finished when I'm done with it. I have a great serenity that comes from woodworking. Boy, but if you ask me to go to the woodworking conference on a Sunday or hang out with my brothers and sisters on a Sunday, no competition. I'm with the brothers and sisters on a Sunday. Woodworking can go out the window. No debate. And so this idea that the Holy Spirit had revealed something to him, it, it is not that he's using his reason. It is not that the culture has told him to do something. He's not basing his, his life on his feelings. And you think of all these things in Christians that we know that they do. They use reason. They use what the world says. They use their feelings. But that's not the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. They're different spirits. So how can I be led by the Holy Spirit? How can I be clear on the difference between these things? And you have to search your heart. It's the work of the faith that we have to understand our heart and know where our love is and and understand who and what we're led by. But this guy, he's led by the Holy Spirit. And the the Bible says Messiah's coming and his actions are, I'm going to go wait down at the baby thing till the Messiah shows up. I want to see him. It's a really simple connection. And no matter what other people say, like he's just there. So he came by the Spirit. This spirit led Simeon because he loves what he's reading in the word and he kind of wants, there's this, he just can't let this thing go. And man, I got to tell you, like most recent example for me, I don't know why I wanted to build a milk carton boat. I had no idea. I'm like, Lord, why is this such a big, I can't let it go. I'm really, I want, my family's doesn't care. Like, thank you, Katie, for coming with on this. But stuff's like, I don't, I don't know why I want to do this. And Grant's like, I got to work. I got a job to do. And I'm like, okay, all I have in life is to build this milk carton boat. And I can't tell you why. And then we got down there and man, tons of people. We got to talk to more people about our faith and our fellowship and our love for God than in nearly any other activity we've done. And it was just something where it was like, 
being led by the Holy Spirit. I don't know why I'm here, but I know that I love hanging out with my, my friends and I know that I have a heart to do this thing. I think it's why Danny picks up hiking trips. She's blessed by hiking trips. There is a spirit of fellowship when she gets to go hiking with people, her brothers and sisters in the faith. She loves it. So she puts up an invitation. Let's go hiking. Let's go do this hiking thing. Why does she do it? Because she enjoys it. And so you put together those things that are just driving you in the Holy Spirit towards the thing that God said is good, which is fellowship. And then God can use those things and bless it. And the way God uses Simeon, I'm sure Simeon had like either he had a day job or he was retired and his kids were taking care of him. But he's just like, he gets up in the morning, he, he trims his big Jewish beard and he goes, he curls his little side locks and he goes heading down to the temple and he's just going to wait all day to see what babies come through. That was his thing. He didn't know why it was his thing. It didn't make any sense. But it was something that he just felt in the spirit that he just loved doing that. And then he walks up to this strange couple and says, hey, can I hold your baby? If you're, this, if you're Mary and Joseph, do you let this weird, strange man hold your baby? Like, now this thing orchestrates and plays out. Like, think about this. Young people, if you have your brand new baby and some stranger, hey, can I hold your baby? And he's got a look in his eye that's a little off the rails. Like a little spark with this guy. I'd really like to hold your baby. You're thinking, well, he's not fast enough to run away with him. So yeah, sure, not sketchy at all. Yes, you can hold my baby. And he took him up in his arms, verse 28. He just embraces Jesus, doesn't even know Jesus. But something in his spirit said, that one, that's the one. And he trusted that voice. Goes down, takes him up in his arms, there's no teaching from Jesus yet, no healing from Jesus yet. He hasn't turned water into wine yet. He's just a baby, probably out of the swaddling clothes and into some actual like onesies. You know, an I love Jesus onesie would have been really ironic, but I'm just saying. Blessed God when he did it. He doesn't bless the baby. He blesses God. Is that Luke making a, a slip that's actually perfectly accurate? Do you see that? Simeon takes up the baby in his arm and he blesses God. He's supposed to be blessing the baby. When you, you know, when you do a baby dedication, you say, God bless this baby. But he doesn't bless the baby. He blesses God. Or is he actually, is that actually accurate and true? He's actually blessing God by blessing the baby. And he sees and knows exactly what Messiah is. Even though the entire Sadducee, Pharisee, ascetic, zealot groups, none of them recognized what was happening. But this faithful, devout guy, just guy, he knows exactly what's happening. Notice that verses 29 through 32, as we go forward, they're in quotes. He says this, and Luke then pulling quotes around this, says that he's taking this from the temple records. Simeon says something here that gets written down. Because he's proclaiming something at the temple. And, and he's claiming that it's the Holy Spirit that got him to say this. The temple priests in the courtyard then are obligated to write this down. Anytime someone says, the Holy Spirit's inspiring me to say this, God told me this, the temple people are supposed to keep that in their records. So Luke puts quotes around this. He's pulling this right from the temple records. We probably have it word for word. Verse 29, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. There's that according to your word again. It keeps coming up. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Literally, Jesus' name is Yahweh is salvation. Which you have prepared before the face of all people. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is so loaded. Your servant depart in peace, verse 26. 
likely he's older and he's feeling his age. And he's like, now I can die in peace because I know that when you told me I'd see the Messiah, it was true. I don't have to doubt that anymore. So he's holding this baby Jesus thinking, ah, now I can die in peace. He lived his whole life to hold a baby? That's this guy. That's the meaning of this guy's life. And we beat ourselves up because we don't do feed our starving children more often. Like this guy had one thing that God called him to do and he does it and he's like, ah, now I've fulfilled everything God wanted me to do. Not just the obligatory things, but that extra mission that God gave me. And his name's recorded in the Bible for this 10-minute activity. That's interesting. He spent his whole devout life preparing for one moment. What a blessing this guy is. It's like his whole life was set apart for this one thing, this one task, and his job was to wait faithfully until it happened. According to your word, God's doing exactly as he said. We can now call this a theme for Luke. He keeps saying it. Many go through life doing their own thing. Very few people go through life doing what God said according to God's word. Well, God says to do it this way, so I'm going to do it that way. No compromise. All in. So few people just do things according to God's word. Seen, I've seen your salvation. Literally, Jesus is in there, which means God will save the world. And here it is. Before the face of, we get that phrase. It's an Old Testament phrase. In the Hebrew, that word is? In your grill. Up in your grill, right? Which is the word panim in the Hebrew. It means in your grill. He does, which you have prepared before the face of all people. You've done this right in front of us. If God's omnipresent, it means he is off in the room with us, but he's also a millimeter away from your nose. If God's everywhere, he's in your face. And when God acts, it is only just that he does everything right in front of us. And Luke has made that theme in chapter 1 and 2. Everything was public. The shepherds told everybody. Mary kept it in her heart, but everybody else was talking about it. And he's made that so clear. Everything with Jesus was public, public, public. His birth, his circumcision, his 40-day dedication ceremony, before the face of the people. God didn't do this in secret. It's the only world religion where every event we claim to live our life by happened in public. Every other world religion has some person in a closet somewhere finding something out that the rest of us have to then just trust them. Luke doesn't ask us to trust him. He asks us to trust the temple records. He asks us to trust the shepherd narratives and all the people in Bethlehem. He asks us to trust the people that were in Nazareth and all the people in Nazareth. And he keeps showing this. We're here to trust Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and Simeon. Here's another person saying the same thing. Can you see how he's writing a research paper here? It's just one person after another that we're just supposed to be, we're not just trusting Luke because he had a revelation at the bottom of a ship on the sea somewhere and he wrote it down for everyone to see. But then it got lost and now we just have to trust the rewrite of it. All people, the Gentiles, this is more than just the Jews. Simeon says all Gentiles and Israel. Notice the order of those things. The expansion of salvation to everyone comes through Israel. It is not Israel. That Israel simply was there to, they had the great honor of bearing that forth. And they have honors and duties at the end of days too, which is why we still have Israel around. Jesus is seated in Judah, but he's a blessing to the world. At this point in time, there's roughly 100 million people on the earth. That's a, that's a fairly small country, right? That's, that's not 
too much bigger than um, a European or a, a, an African country today. 100 million people. Of which Israel was in the middle of all the trade routes. So when you say it goes out to the Gentiles, and we know it's spreading in different directions from here, that this word is getting around on the Roman road system that Octavius is benefiting from, that this is going out everywhere. Verse 33, three, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. It's kind of exciting and, and affirming. They're going through a tough time in life. But it's nice to know you're not alone, even when total strangers come up. And it seems like a creepy old man, but what comes out of his mouth is a total blessing from the voice of God. It had to be affirming, like, wow, this is, we get to shepherd this child to adulthood. And then Simeon blessed them. First he blesses God, now he blesses them, Mary and Joseph. And he said to Mary, his mother, and now we're back, and it doesn't say Joseph there. He turns to Mary and he says, Behold, this child is destined to the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign. Literally, the word means a target, which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There's a fall and a rising. This is how people react to Jesus. And Simeon called it at his, when he was a 40-day-old baby. People are going to rise and fall based on the name of Jesus alone. How do you respond to Jesus? That's the question. Uh, I'm religious, but I, I, you know, I'm not very religious. But you know, I believe in God. How do you believe in Jesus? Is Jesus your Savior? And people will abstract this and whatnot, but the name of Jesus still holds power. It's the only religious figure that's used as a swear word. Right? It says the sword will pierce. In other images, we get the sword as being the word of God. What comes out of his mouth will pierce people. And I, I can't help but think of the time when people come up and say, hey, your mother needs to see you. And Jesus says, who is my brother and who's my sister? Who's my mother? It's the people of God that I'm spending time with right now. That had to hurt Mary a little bit. That had to pierce her. That Jesus' family was his spiritual family first, his biological family second. This idea of a, sign, a target or a sign that will be spoken against. Jesus becomes the target of a lot of malevolence in this world. A lot of hatred comes Jesus' way, even today. The idea of Jesus that it, is that it forces people to make a choice. Either you believe that this public declaration from God, death, crucifixion, and resurrection were for you and your sins, or you don't. That's the dividing line. Either it's real or it's not. And to say it's not, you ha it takes a lot of faith too, especially when you're reading Luke and he's like, look, this is all public documentation. This all happened in the face of you and everyone that was alive. Everyone knew what was going on with Jesus. Some believed it, some didn't. So Jesus comes to force this choice. He comes as a lamb before he comes back as a warrior. And that choice gets to be made and we get to pick teams and there will be a piercing of our hearts and Mary herself will have to have her heart pierced too. She's going to have to recognize she's a sinner and she too needs salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ, her, her, her son, but also her savior, which she already knows that. She's already said her savior. The thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. Some blaspheme Jesus, some reject Jesus, some make fun of or mock Jesus. Some are humble and they accept and they repent and they serve Jesus. Two lines, two paths. There are two roads you can go by. Who is Jesus to you? It's still the same question. It's still the same line. 
What does he look like? And then you get this Anna that shows up. Verse 36. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, a daughter of Penuel. She gets a family name of the tribe of Asher. She has credentials. She was of a great age. She's an old lady and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in, in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Here's the cool thing with Anna. Like, she's a widow, but she hangs out with these, these people. She gets called a prophetess. Now, there was a group all the way back with Moses in the tabernacle. You remember there's a group of women that would hang out in front of the tabernacle, and all they did is they prayed and they fasted? It looks like that tradition has continued all the way to the first century. That there's just a group of women, they're like, I'm going to dedicate my life to prayer and fasting in front of the temple. They're spiritual warriors. They're essential for God's work. And the fact that Anna gets brought into here means that with Simeon and now Anna, you have two temple witnesses. People that were known. People that proclaimed it. So they serve God with fastings and prayers. This goes back to Exodus 38, 1 Samuel 2. There's this group of women, and they serve in the temple, and they serve in the courtyard. They help out around the place. They work, and they serve there. Their primary role, however, was fasting and praying. They help make everything run smoothly, but the most important thing I think that they do is they pray without ceasing, day and night. And they keep this vigilance. There's this sisterhood there that keeps everything going. And Anna's one of those people, a prophetess. And man, the Spirit of God is just honor. Luke doesn't say that in this passage, but she just recognizes and sees it, gives thanks to the Lord, and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. That means she stays in this temple courtyard for all of her days saying, Messiah's here. Jesus showed up. We, I saw him get blessed. He, they gave the sacrifice for him. And she spokes of him, which in, it should be a capital H there, of Jesus, of the Messiah. Everybody that'll listen, Anna's running around. And again, some people would mock her. Some people would think she's nuts. Some people would be excited and the spirit would be stirred when she talked to him. And it's like, oh, Messiah's here. He's growing up. This is so exciting. But even with Anna, we see with the shepherds, we see with Simeon, we see with Anna, all these people proclaiming the name of Jesus before Jesus can even talk. I think that's exciting. Like God's using his incarnation very quickly to get things widely known. So another public testimony, another kind of understanding. The fact that the Pharisees don't get on board is their problem. It's not that they didn't hear about it or that they didn't know about it. It's important, I think, for children to have adults that believe in them. Jesus is blessed with a mom and dad, Joseph and Mary, that love him and believe in him. He's blessed by the fact that when they go down to the temple, there's Simeon, there's Anna. I don't know if Simeon and Anna live another year, but Jesus would come back to that temple every year until he grows up. We're going to see a scene here in verse 39 where he's coming back as a middle schooler, right? So he's coming back every year. He runs into these people until they die. So he's coming in and people know who Jesus is as he grows up. So they went. So when they had performed all the things according to the law of the Lord, again, following the law, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong in spirit and filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. How do you grow up as a godly kid? First, have a bunch of godly adults that believe in you. That's a good weapon to have in your arsenal. That's a good blessing to have. And then to grow, become strong in spirit. 
No indication of physical strength there. It really means that he had a spirit and a will. There was a joy to this guy. You met him and he was alive. You ever notice that with kids? Some of them are half awake all the time. And some of them are all awake all the time. And they're just lit up. They're alive kids. And you got other kids that their face is just in a phone all day. And they're barely, they're walking through life like zombies. Not Jesus. He became strong in spirit. He became filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. How do you become, how do you grow up in a godly way? Strong as spirit, be awake and be alive. Have wisdom, use your head. Grow in wisdom with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the grace of God. Be a blessing to the people around you. Be a gift. Don't be a kid that constantly needs things from people. Be a kid that blesses people and has grace and gives people affection and love that maybe they didn't deserve. So Jesus grows up like any other human, but spiritually he didn't give in to the selfishness of childhood. He didn't give in to sin. He didn't give in to rebellion. He didn't have to sow his wild oats. He didn't have his like college rebellion stage. He didn't do any of that sort of thing. He just grew up and he grew up quickly. The grace of God, there's no record of miracles or power with Jesus as he's growing up. But the grace of God is, is the natural disposition of a godly person. So he doesn't turn water to wine until he's 30. But this idea that for 30 years he just shows grace to people, think of that as a ministry. That every time you met that individual, you just walked away feeling God's love. That is his ministry. This is what establishes him. Um, the wisdom too, this idea of, of aging, typically wisdom comes with age, not with Jesus. He gets wise early. And that fear of the Lord comes in quickly. The knowledge of the holy is understanding, Proverbs, Proverbs 9. Jesus understands. He learns the law. He understands what it is. He understands what holy looks like. And he lives that way. So he understands all these things. And I think it's important to know that if Jesus grows in a strong spirit, he became, grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. There is this idea that he is extremely human and with a limited human mind perspective and only five senses, he too has to grow in these things. There's nothing wrong with growth. It doesn't mean that Jesus was sinful when he was a kid. It means that he grew up and like any other human, he has to grow in these things. And I say that because I, I think sometimes as believers, we beat ourselves up because we're not as mature as somebody else. But Jesus growing in these things had to develop these things. And, and we see in verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Hey, Simeon, how you doing? Hey, Anna, what's going on? You know, he's got these people watching him, paying attention to his life. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast, following the law. And when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing, it doesn't say his father and his mother, it says Joseph and his mother. Luke's really careful about that. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now you might think, what horrible parents. How do you not know your kid is with you when you travel back? This is fairly common. These massive migrations would happen with big family groups. So you're just assuming they're running off with the other kids. And, the, and of course, crime is much more diminished in this period than it is today. So this idea of letting your 12-year-old your run off and hang out with his friends, not unheard of. But a day goes by as I wait, where's Jesus? Why didn't he come back to our tent? 
what's going on? Well, he's probably staying with his friend or something. But they kind of wise up to it. They ask around a little bit, and where is he? So they turn around, and they have to go back. Man, if, if, if my dad had to come back and find me because I decided to not hang out with the group, I'd have been in trouble. And so there is a, there is a tone here that Luke hints at that, the, that Mary and Joseph, they're not happy with Jesus right now. So some people say, well, is this an instance then where Jesus defied his parents? And the answer is, is an interesting one. At age 13, that's the traditional age of manhood for Jews. He's not at that age yet. So this is not his bar mitzvah. He's 12 years old. Luke makes that very clear. This is his last year of childhood. In verse 43, he makes it clear again. The boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. He's not of age. So he should be with his parents. So there is an idea here that he, at age 12, the year before manhood, you have one year where Jesus should be learning his father's trade. He should be about his father's business. So you have at age 12, what happens in a Jewish traditional life is he should be with Joseph learning carpentry. And he should be taking that time to, it's, that's the initiation, that's the basics. To be a professional carpenter, he has to start learning the trade. And you got about a year to start finding your place in the shop with people. So this is a very interesting story because this is exactly what he says he's doing. He's actually being obedient to his parent in heaven, his father in heaven. And in doing this, he causes anxiety for Mary and Joseph, but he's not sinning against Mary and Joseph. And we'll see how Luke handles this. I think this is kind of interesting. So when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. And now, so it was after three days, they found him in the temple. Where are they searching for three days? Whose houses are they checking in on? Are they literally going door to door? Like Jerusalem's a lot of people. This is a big town three days of searching for him. Maybe they're checking the brothels or seeing if he's been child trafficked. You know, they're trying to like check out what is he's been. They go down to the slave market and they see if he's being traded for as a slave. Both, so, but they find him, they find him in the temple. Maybe after three days, they go to the temple to pray. Maybe they're just there because they're exhausted. It is amazing that they don't go there in three days time. But there he is. They think he's dead, but three days later they find him alive. Don't miss that little mirroring too. So he's sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them. How, do you, how can a young person be a godly person? Listen. And even the God of the universe growing up with a limited child's mind, he finds that listening comes first. He's listening to learned people. And ask them questions. If something stumps you, ask about it. My grandma used to say, Whenever you go see a professional, they're there to answer your questions. So you go in to see a doctor, you should have questions for that doctor before you walk in the door. They're there to serve you. So that idea of listening to these learned people and then asking them questions, these are the same people that in 30 years he's going to call hypocrites. You teach one thing and then he sees them living another way. So all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers so they're asking him questions too, and he's giving answers. This was rabbinical style. They would put a problem in front of, they'd read a passage, and, and then they would ask a question of the audience. Well, how should this person have responded here? And then you deal with the answers of what that looks like, and Jesus would give answers, and they were just astounded because he's kind of on top of it. That means that it, with his understanding and his answers, Jesus has read the word for himself. 
you know, he's had three days. Like he's been, he's going, getting up in the morning. I don't know where Jesus is sleeping at, by the way. Is he just sleeping in the courtyard? This is nice Mediterranean weather, maybe. So he's just sacking out. And then the, the, the teachers come out on day one and, oh, what a cool kid. He's just here studying the word. But day two, you're like, hey, that kid's back. And he's here again. Day three, they're probably thinking, wow, where are this kid's parents? What's going on? Like, there's Jesus again. He's just hanging out. He's learning his trade. And his trade isn't carpentry. Carpentry is his duty to provide for his mother after Joseph's gone. But his trade is to learn the scriptures and the word. He puts God first. So he should, some of these folks, I think, and this is interesting, some of these same priests rabbis that are working with Jesus right now in 30 years they're in 33 and well 12 so we're only 20 years away ish in 20 years they're the same people they're going to ask for him to be killed and crucified they know him from childhood they know his name from childhood they know who he is and here as a child they're marvel oh isn't that cute look at that kid look at that 10 year old that can play Chopin on the piano what a prodigy how impressive but then that prodigy grows up and says, you're playing the piano the wrong way. Well, who does this guy think he is? He thinks he knows more than we do. And they're not willing to relent on their expertise and their positions. They're too prideful to do that. But Jesus is going to grow up and point out where some of their teachings are faulty. And they don't want to hear it, even though he's been studying. But here they're impressed with them. They're impressed with, wow, what, a, what an interesting kid. I loved when like, people would meet Grant and Katie when they were younger and they would be like, wow, what neat kids you have. And I'm like, no, God's loaned them to us. And we're happy to, we're happy to shepherd them. He's sitting with them, listening and asking questions, getting deeper understanding of God's word. How do you grow up as a godly kid? Study God's word and do it with people that know more than you do. That's how you do it. And I say kid, like, I also mean new believer. I think you come to faith as a 50-year-old. Well, start by doing the basics. Learn the word, understand it, ask the questions, resolve those things that bother you and get it taken care of so that you can handle tough concepts and as a believer, you can move forward with confidence. They found him in the temple sitting amidst the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. To ask questions is a rabbinical behavior that he starts to exercise at age 12. He's learning his father's trade. And he's doing exactly, and then when they find him, verse 48, so when they saw him, they're amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? She's mad. When moms say that, they're mad. That's like when they use your middle name. Why have you done this to me? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Well, their anxiety is kind of on them. And Jesus, I think, artfully points this out. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? I'm 12. This is the year. And of course, we only come down to the temple once a year. This, I have to be here. For, and I didn't know. I was, I was overwhelmed with this. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. And Luke's recording it because we now know that Jesus was about his father's business, just like he said he was. He was 12 years old. It was time for him to learn his trade. And he's starting to learn his trade. And he's pointing out to them, just because they're anxious doesn't mean he has to own that anxiety. Think about this in family relationships. It is not a sin for you to say, your anxiety is not my anxiety. And your lack of trust in the Lord is not my responsibility. There is a distancing there that each person's accountable for their own heart. 
And it, at some level, the way he phrases this is, I think, a very honoring way to point out that their anxiety is their sin. And the fact that he, 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 they say that Jesus has done something to them, all he has done is served his father. And they never said, we're leaving at this time, you need to be with the group. He's not disobeying them because we have no record that he's disobeyed a direct command. So then look what, what happens here. Um, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them in verse 51. After this point, they start to give clear directions and he, as an obedient child, follows them under the law. And so what they start to assume, well, he's a good kid, we can just trust you. Now they're getting a little more specific because they're realizing he's got a mission that he's serving as king. And so he becomes subject to them. How do you grow up as a godly kid? Respect your parents. Do what they say. If they're not asking you to break God's law, then they're trying to really look out for you and love you. So there is this, this point. So he is subjected to them. There's no sin in this sense. I think that's what Luke's trying to do there. He's actually doing what's right, but it doesn't happen again because he could see that it bothered his mom and dad and out of respect to his mom and dad, he's not going to sit at the temple again. It just happened when he was 12. But from here on out, he's just going to be subject to them until he's of age. My father's business. <laughs> so the fact that they don't understand this statement, I think largely this idea of a father is not an Old Testament concept. I really looked for this. Using the term father for God or Abba is a New Testament idea. And Jesus is introducing this in this statement. Throughout the New Testament and the epistles, we see our, our father who was out in heaven is how he taught them to pray. Jesus taught his disciples to refer to God as God the Father. Why is this not in the Old Testament? It's really, largely, Jesus invented this. There's lots of names for God in the Old Testament. Protector, Tower, Salvation, Elohim, Yahweh. But Jesus introduces Abba, Father, and that's because there is a firstborn son named Jesus now. If I don't have a kid, I'm not a father. The name doesn't apply. But once there's an incarnated child that I have, I gain a new title. So when Jesus says, I'm about my father's business and they don't understand it, it's because that term hasn't been used as they've studied the Bible their whole life. So they're probably thinking he's talking about Joseph. And they're like, Joseph's business isn't to be at the temple learning the word of God. And Mary's pondering these things in her heart going, oh, his father, father. I get what's going on here. The disciples picked up on this and they use it. And they embrace it. And as Christians, this is one of the distinctions between Christianity and Judaism. We see God as the Father. And we refer to God and we start to distinguish between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all the same being, but they have different titles. And so in Romans 8.15, we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And we use this term as Christians because we're adopted into the family and we become brothers and sisters in Christ. So we don't know that there's no need for this term. So God being named Yahweh through the Old Testament, but then later we see this father thing. John explains it in John 5.18. Therefore the Jews sought to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The claim of God the Father is as much, when Jesus says that, he's saying that I have the spirit of the God Almighty in me. I am equal to my Father. I have the essence of my Father in me. 
So this, I'm about my father's business, is the first occasion that he's actually implying or proclaiming with his mouth that he has the essence of deity in him. Kind of interesting. It's good they didn't understand him because they would kill the kid for saying things like that. Right? But the, he says it. So here he says it to Mary and Joseph. They know it to be true. Later it's this same proclamation that is going to get him in trouble in 20 years. So in Christ we have this God that is in two forms interacting with us. A limited son, Jesus Christ incarnate, and an omnipotent God eternal that is still managing the universe while all this happens. How does that work? In dimensions we don't understand. Like it really goes beyond our understanding. But it's fun to ponder. Verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth. He was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus, which tells us where Luke got the information. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. These things in his heart, just that idea that Mary just keeps track of all of this. And Jesus increased for 18 more years until he's age 30, he increases. He becomes the head of the home. Joseph dies somewhere in here. And he takes over and he starts to provide for Mary and for his brothers and sisters. He's faithful in providing for and caring for that home. I think he's faithful in caring for that home for 18 more years until one of these brothers and sisters of Mary and Joseph are old enough to take over the carpentry business. And, I, I, and again, that's not scriptural. It doesn't say that. But we have 18 fairly ordinary years where he's conducting very like living life kind of tasks. He's getting up in the morning. He sweeps up the shop in the afternoon. He's taking orders. He's giving things out. Jesus is living a godly life without any miracles, without any ministry, without proclaiming anything. And yet since a child, everybody knows this guy's special. And he just lives a life providing for his family. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think sometimes in the church, we think if we're not Joel Olstein on a stage with spotlights, we're not doing God's work. Well, that would then apply that to Jesus. He spends 18 years between 12 and 30 just doing the work of caring for his family. And in that, he is God's son. And at the baptism, God says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. He's happy with Jesus before he even starts doing the ministry. He's, he's lived under the law. He's just He's devout. He grows in wisdom, knowing the word of God, stature, his position with the community and with his family, and in favor with God and men. He lives peacefully and respectfully with everybody he knows. How do you grow up as a godly child? You do that. Live in such a way where people will honor, where you can be an honor and respecting the people around you. Jesus increased. The wisdom there, I think, is the learning the word, the discourse, the communication of it. Stature would be age, time, maturity, and position within the family and the community, growing mentally to a degree that other people recognize that. Stature. Other people can see that this guy's growing up into a man. Favor is another word for grace. Jesus is liked because he's kind, he's gracious, he's easy to get along with, he's loyal, he's faithful, he's reliable. If you don't push him, he's a blessing to you. Where he starts to get a little bit like snappy with people is when they start pushing on him. When the Pharisees show up, the legalist shows up. Otherwise, he walks up to Matthew and says, follow me. And Matthew leaves his tax collector booth and follows Jesus. What kind of guy do you know that you would just up and follow if they said, leave everything and follow me? Is it time? Because they all know this guy's special. 
And so he calls people like that and they leave it. He's from Nazareth, but Galilean fishermen leave their jobs and go follow him. Instant, like there's a spirit working amongst the people. Good, hardworking family people. There's a spirit moving amongst these folks in, in Israel in the Galilean region. So this season of his life between age 12 and age 30 is not detailed. Not a lot of things of note. Not things to focus on. Um, but at the time of crucifixion, it's interesting that the, they call in people to testify against Jesus and not one person can come forward with something against him. That means he's lived to age 33 when he's on trial and gets crucified. Not one person after 33 years can say, this guy wronged me, this guy did something inappropriate, this guy trespassed against me. Not one. And I don't know a lot of five-year-olds that would have that, be, would, that, you wouldn't be able to identify when they sinned. Right? Or even two-year-olds. Most of us don't even get to two before we to turn totally selfish. But Jesus gets to age 33, not one person can testify against him. Just false testification. So he's known with God and men. It's a human standard to say we're pretty good people. But with God's standard to be respected by God, that's a whole different standard. He lives according to God's law, blameless. He follows his own rules. And he does it perfectly. That idea of that statement of his growth is that he has grown under God's law. Here's the other thing. He did it as a human, which erases our excuses that we somehow sinned because we're human. Well, I'm just human like everybody else. Well, actually, you're guilty of your sin because it is possible to grow up and not be selfish. It is possible. Jesus proved it without a miraculous account of any sort. He just lived righteously. So when we compare ourselves against the world, we can say we're pretty decent folks. I'm better than Jeffrey Dahmer, right? But when we compare ourselves to Jesus in his humanity, no, we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have not grown as Jesus grew. We, are, we have fallen short of those things. So we can live in this way. Jesus has proven that an incarnate human can live in this way. And Luke gives that account of how he grows up. So far, he's obeyed his parents, he's studied the word, he's been subject to the family duties that are involved, he's increased in wisdom, he's increased in stature, and he's increased in favor with the people around him. He's reliable and faithful and trustworthy. So you think of what growing up like a godly person looks like. Luke gives us this amazing account of how he grows, he learns, he studies, he doesn't take any shortcuts as an incarnate God. He doesn't use miraculous intervention to study God's word. He shows up at the temple and listens and learns like every human has to do. I just like that. It, it brings Jesus a lot closer that he did this in front of everybody, in front of our faces, and there's a documentation of it. We live lives that are worthy because Jesus lived a life that was worthy. So we try to follow that. We put aside our sins of our past. We move forward in faith. Why do we do that? Because Jesus opened a path for us to be free from sin. We're not obligated to sin. We're not controlled by it anymore. So we live rightly. Jesus does it publicly. People watch him. People see him. We know he's fully human before any teaching comes out of his mouth. We know he's, and we see him learning before he teaches. Before he's just spoken any parables, he's grown in wisdom. Before any miracle happens, we know that he's fully responsible and takes care of life as a normal human being. 
I think those 30 years speak as loudly to his ministry as any particular miracle does. To get to be 30 years old and live that kind of life, that's a miracle too. But that's a miracle of being led by the Holy Spirit. So from the day we choose to follow Jesus, that's what we're called to. We're called to that kind of life. And how sad and how many Christians miss out on the blessing because they continue to persist in their old ways instead of living in a way that honors God. And the blessings that come from living like this are the blessings of the faith, that he grows in favor with God and men. Like, what more can people ask for in life? But note, by the way, it doesn't say Jesus got rich at all. all. In fact, most of the money from the Magi probably went to their vacation to Egypt, which we get in other Gospels. Right? He's working hard. And there's honor in that. In fact, we've had generations of people that believe that whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God, even if that's shipping and trucking, even if it's making mushroom mulch, if it's gardening, if it's industrial work, if it's white-collar work and doing law, you do everything to the glory of God. And for 30 years, Jesus just does his job every day, probably six days a week. So if that's the case with Jesus, and we want to grow up in our faith, I think we do the same thing. We listen, we learn, we subject ourselves, and we grow, just like Jesus did, until God calls us to a certain activity or behavior like Simeon, where he's waited his whole life for that moment he felt called to. And then he was ready to step in and do it at an instant, because that instant came and it happened. And we don't have to wait a lifetime. Quite frankly, if you start doing what Jesus did and living that way, I don't think you have to wait very long at all. Most Christians I know start seeing godly interventions and miracles right away. We live in the church age. God looks over the whole earth for godly people that he can use. And he, and he instantly employs us. When we start putting our heart towards Jesus' heart, living the way Jesus lived, God's like, I got jobs for you to do. I got tasks for you to take on. And that's why we share some of those things when we come to church. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he grew up and grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And Lord, we pray that we as your servants can be like that. Lord, help us to not waste another day. Lord, help us to walk out of this room taking our sin, putting it on the altar, burning it up, repenting of it, and Lord, walking and sinning no more. Lord, we want to be like you, and that's so hard. We got our flesh pulling us one way. We got the world telling us what to be anxious about. We got the enemy sometimes spiritually intervening, spiritually tempting and luring. And Lord, we, we want those things to just be put in their place and diminished. We're free from those things. We're free from that burden. Lord, I pray that we can set our hearts upon you and we can walk according to your ways in all things. And Lord, help us to strengthen one another in doing that as a body of brothers and sisters all trying to serve Christ. Help us to have grace as you did and help us to be a blessing to one another and to be a gift in one another's lives. Help us to show each other that love in a variety of ways. In Jesus' name, amen.